Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, folks. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Payal. And I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my melting pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. A big hello, my melting pot listeners from all over the world. Welcome to yet another episode of Melting Pot. As always, I'm truly inspired to bring you human stories from different cultures. Today's conversation is with author Jeshree Mishra in London. Jeshree started her writing career with, as she calls it, a semi-autobiographical book called Ancient Promises, after which she has published several other very noteworthy books, which I will let her talk about, along with her personal journey. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jeshree. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Payal. Yeah, I mean, I have, you know, I mean, I always get very curious to know what really inspires someone to start writing. It's, I suppose it appears differently to different people, but I know that I, I've heard a lot of writers saying this because I've, you know, I get to go to literary festivals and hear lots of other writers speak. It's not the kind of question which a writer would ask another writer, but then I hang around the edges of crowds and audiences and I listen a, a lot to other writers when they're on stage. And this is a question that they get asked quite often, usually from an audience member who's possibly thinking of starting a writing career of their own is what gets you going. And I think it's the reason why a writer probably wouldn't ask another writer is that the answer genuinely is, I don't know, it's like a wellspring. It's like something that's there inside you, bubbling away that you simply can't stop. It's, I describe it sometimes as a tap inside of me somewhere that I can't turn off. So if it if this desire to write seizes me, and it doesn't always, there are long periods of time when I, the, the, the tap just won't get turned on. Um, but if that wellspring thing is happening, then everything and anything else will take a back seat because I just, all I will want to do is sit down and write. And I think I've probably had that since I was a kid. I, amongst my, you know, my 
collection of friends. We would all go off on our long summer holidays. This is when I was growing up in India. So the two-month summer holidays would be upon us. And I would be the only one among my amongst my friends who would be writing long, copious letters to the rest of them who, who must have been very mystified about these huge, long letters that came along that they never bothered to reply to. So things like that must have been an early sign of my actually liking writing enough to do it for the sheer pleasure of it. So that's where it comes from, I suppose. Okay. And so when did you pen down your first book? When did you author your first book and how long was it Ancient Promises? My first book, Pyle, was when I was about 10 or maybe even younger. I must have been eight or something oh. like that. I can't quite remember. And I wish I wish I'd kept it or I wish my mom had kept it somewhere because it would have been such fun to have a laugh now. But it was a it was it was just long enough to fill the pages of, you know, those old hardback notebooks that we used to buy when we were school children in India. So it was long enough, I guess, because I don't suppose there were many eight year olds or whatever I was who would have bothered to fill the you know all the pages of including the margins and everywhere that I I, I was scribbling. And I took the trouble to actually create a hardback cover for it as well. So I had a little collage of pictures, stuff that I cut out of magazines and so on and pasted it onto the, the cover. I don't know whether, I can't even remember whether the cover had a theme or whether I just went for whichever picture I could get my hands on. And uh, I also gave it a title. So apart from an ISBN number, I think it had everything that a book would want. Um <laughs> The title I remember very well because I don't remember much else about it and certainly don't remember the story. But the I title I thought long and hard about and I came up with and the world marched on dot 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 dot. And that was that was my first attempt at writing. It was something very pompous and very silly, probably. And I do wish I kept it because that would have been a nice way to bring myself down every time I felt a little full of myself and my writing and so on. But I, I didn't, unfortunately, with a father in the Air Force and, you know, transfers and moving around the country every three, three years. Things like this kind of disappear. They just get chucked out somewhere. So that was my first attempt at writing. And then, of course... Ancient Promises happened much, much later. But um, I think I'd been honing and trying out writing in many different ways before that, just for myself. And in a funny way, Ancient Promises also was just written for myself. Or you could say written for my husband, the person I'm married to. No, I wasn't married to him then. But I'd come back into his life and carrying a lot of baggage from a previous marriage. And I felt... Many times that there were things he just couldn't understand. We'd gone out together when we were teenagers. He, we knew each other. We thought we knew each other very well. But the 10 years when I'd been married to somebody else were, and the decision, the reason why I decided to do that were things that I don't think he ever understood. And much as I tried to explain things, I still don't think he was able to understand. So in an odd sort of way, this was my way of just trying to clarify things, both inside my head and like a little bit like trying to write a long love letter to somebody. I've told you about the long letters I always wrote. So this was one of those, I guess, to begin with. I thought maybe if I write it all down and actually give it to him with the entire sort of everything, the inner life of a girl at 19 who finds herself propelled into making certain decisions and it might help him understand better. He might be able to better get into the 
the head of that girl whom he simply couldn't understand when I, whenever I tried to explain her to him. So that was the beginnings of Ancient Promises. And I was all by myself in those days, you know, in a, through the daytime, because my daughter would go off to school and my husband would go off to work. Husband now <laughs> would go off to work. We were living together at the time. And I had a very silent house. I was actually feeling quite down about many things because I'd had to give up a job with the BBC because I couldn't keep, I couldn't ma manage the hours because of the care of my daughter who has special needs and so on. So I was just feeling very resentful about a lot of other circumstances around in my life. And I sat down to write this book in the quiet of a London house where there was no one to disturb me, no telephone ringing. Um, I, you know, I didn't even have to get myself lunch if I was in the throes of writing something. And Sitting down to write it, I think it was a bit like opening floodgates and I just couldn't stop once I'd started. Uh, so the genesis, the beginnings of the book is actually quite, I mean, it was an unintentional sort of book. It wasn't meant to be a book at all. But by the time I got to about 45 pages, I, I think I began to, to realize that I could turn it into a book. So it began to dawn on me that there was enough material there inside of me to make it a proper full length novel, you know, to produce 100,000 words or whatever you need to make it novel length. So I think around that time, I started to construct a little bit and do a little bit more of the creating, which is what, or the crafting, which is what a writer must do to make it readable to other people. So I then somewhere along the way, I started to break it into chapters. <laughs> and I suppose so it just evolved very organically from being something very personal in the process of writing it, it actually developed and became a book, a novel. So is this, uh, so Ancient Promises, is it the book which is closest to your heart? Because you weren't, clearly you weren't able to verbalize and, you know, tell your husband everything that you, you went through or what you felt or the reasons behind it. So you decided to pen it down. And so because it's, semi-autobiographical is it something which is closest to your heart I mean would you say that as co I mean you've written a lot of other books but as, as compared to all your other books would you consider ancient promises to be the closest to your heart or in, in I mean way, I know yes yeah I mean I, I I would say yes and no sorry to give you a wishy-washy answer but to, to some extent it is exactly as you describe it is so much my story and so much it's such an important thing that I needed to say and do at the time but there's another part of me that was so felt so relieved to get it out of my system and get it out of the way it was a kind of cathartic uh, outpouring that it I felt probably some kind of immense relief when it was done and dusted and I there was a part of me that never wanted to look at it again so I, that which is why I say both, yes, I, I did, I am very close to the material, but then because I'm so close to the material, in a way I wanted not to have very much to do with it. I Even now, when someone tells me, oh, you know, I've picked up this book and I know it's your first one and I'm going to sit down and read it. This might be someone, you know, a new acquaintance or something. I actually find myself cringing inwardly because I think, oh, I don't think I really want them to go into that, that part of my life, which is in some ways still makes me cringe a bit, still embarrasses me slightly still on occasion weighs me down slightly you know these are things that you never entirely overcome this was my way of trying to overcome 10 long years which I 
you know, couldn't really understand why it had happened to me. And if it was a marriage that was going to end, then why did I even, you know, you can't help questioning the fates after something, after a big experience like that. But so it, it, in trying to put it away, I think I part of me would have been quite happy if I'd just written the book and it had got gotten put away somewhere in a back draw. And yeah, my husband could have read it, obviously, and hope, hopefully it would have helped him understand things better. But if no one else had, if it, if it had never seen light of day, I don't know whether I would have, I don't think I would have mourned greatly. <laughs> it was just something I had to do and then finish with. But it got published. Obviously, I was excited when there was an agent and then suddenly there was a publisher. And one of the major publishers, Penguin in the UK, picked it up. So I couldn't have asked for a better publisher. A massive bouquet of flowers arrived saying, welcome to Penguin from you know the, the editor who bought it. So it was all very exciting. And obviously, all of that was you know, it sort of carried me along in a, in a huge surging wave of excitement. But when the business began of first having to explain to my my loved ones, I mean, my, my mother, for instance, that I was going to put my story and that's our story. It wasn't just me. It involved my family and <laughs> my ex-husband's family and all of that. So when I had to try and explain to people that the story was going to be out there, I began to panic. And I think that was when it struck me that I'd done something which I couldn't take back. The, the process had begun. The publishers were well into getting the thing, you know, sort of edited. And um, it was, I'd signed the contract. So there was no backing out at that point. But I did worry about the effect it would have. And then later when the publicity hoopla started, I also then started to get a little, what is the word? It's I started to feel, the, a part of me would feel annoyed with the questions that came my way because even if the questions were about the characters, it was essentially questions about me and about my life. And I felt I really didn't need this. You know, I'd, I'd finished with that marriage. I'd, Ten years had, had passed since then. I'd started a new life. I was living in England. I'd gotten used to the English way of not having people ask you too many things, too many questions. So to try and separate out myself from the characters in the book and all of that was getting very complicated so I can't I wouldn't honestly say hand on heart that is the book that I've enjoyed the most or loved the most or you know I've never reread it I the only time I would have reread parts of the book is if I needed to find an excerpt for some magazine or something so I might have had to search a bit but otherwise it's something I really didn't want to relive <laughs> So I don't know whether that answers your question, Pyle, but it's, yeah. Yeah. no, I can think about the books that I'm happier with, <laughs> <laughs> more happily talk about. And the other thing is, sorry, I'm rambling on, but that, but Ancient Promise is a book that just won't go away. So to some extent, I've put my writing career itself behind me. I haven't really written very much for the last few years. And, you know, I would be, again, I'm reasonably happy to just think of myself or have other people see me as a retired writer or something. But this book keeps popping up. It just keeps coming back. I would every, shall we say, every two or three days at least expect an email or something to pop up in my, um, you know, in my, I have a, on the website, people can email me. And I still get letters and emails from people usually, and this is actually a little distressingly, um, from youngish girls who are about the age that Janu, the protagonist of the book, is about 18 or 19. Some of them are a bit older and they've, you know, they're in college and most of them are Indian and they're going through something a little similar. And they write to me to actually 
not just appreciate the book, but I can't help thinking, get a little bit of advice and ask what they should do. And the reason why I say distressing is I don't mind. I reply to every single email that comes to that inbox. But what I find distressing is that the events which happened in my life about, you know, this is in the early, uh, this is in the 80s and 90s are still happening, you know, 2020. And these events are still happening to young women in India. And that I find quite troubling. Mm. I would have hoped that the world had moved on and girls no longer find themselves coerced into marriages that, you know, they don't want to be in and so on, but apparently not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sorry then. I, sh <laughs> I should not have brought it up because... Oh, I no, but then that's a book that everyone wants to talk about because it also did much better than anything that followed. It was the most <laughs> successful book for, for, for me, certainly. Okay. And, you know, well, I, I'll never be able to live yeah. it down. Okay. So let's just move away from, from that. <laughs> and, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you I saw on your website and you mentioned as well that your father was in the services. So you you kind of, you know, you moved around a fair amount within India, I guess, and then eventually found your way to, to London. So how did how did that happen? Was it because your husband moved to London or did you did you move to London to study or how did that happen? You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Payo, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. It was initially to study. So I came to I, I had been doing voluntary work at my daughter's special school back in India. And the person who had founded the school had done a course, a postgrad diploma from the University of London. There's actually a very acclaimed institute called the Institute of Education. And she had done a diploma in the education and psychology of children with special needs. And she suggested to me, I, I'd been sort of teaching the little ones in the school or playing with them, really. And we got talking about things about Rohini, you know, about my my dreams to, to sort of do something in the area of special needs. And she suggested that I try for admission to the course. She wasn't a parent herself, but she said, I think that they would appreciate the fact that a parent is interested in the subject and they won't, they'll overlook the fact that you haven't done, your, your previous degree hasn't been in education or an education-related field. So, so with a little bit of guidance, guidance from her, I'd applied for the course and I, I got admission to it. And I also got, there's there's something called the Charles Wallace for India Fellowship. So I managed to get a little scholarship for it as well. And that was what brought me in terms of the actual, the practical requirements of, you know, everything that you need to emigrate from one country to the other. That was what actually brought me to England. But I had already re-met the man I'm married to <laughs> now. The chap who might gone out with as a teenager and who appears and promises as, as I keep telling him, a real heroic figure. So he should okay. be happy. Jeffrey, <laughs> I I did not bring up ancient promises again. No, you okay. didn't. You did. But you see how enmeshed it is with my life. So, <laughs> so I by then I had met him again, and I obviously wanted to be where he was. Initially, my plan had been to go to, to America and take my daughter with me. But um, by then we'd met and so I thought, well, and you know, I knew about this course. So I'd applied along with, I got admission actually to a couple of American universities and the University of London. But the decision 
to come to London was because I wanted also to be then boyfriend, now husband. And so so I sort of washed up on these shores <laughs> and started the, the course. And in 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 about six months' time or so, I was able to bring my daughter as well. So then our, our life in England began then. So that was... Yeah, it was it was both um, an educational qualification as well as my personal life and relationship that brought me here. You've recently written a book, which you seem to sort of, I mean, I'm, you know, there are a lot of books between Ancient Promises and, uh, you know, your recent book. But I think your first book and probably you haven't written anything after the, the book that I, I'm going to mention now, both seem to have links with your personal life. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, which is quite interesting. It's almost like you start your career with a book about your personal life. And then I, I don't, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you, you probably retired from writing, but I'm not sure if, if as, as an author or, or a writer, you know, you could ever retire. Maybe you kind yeah, of... I think you're right. Yeah. I say that now because I haven't written for a while, but I know, I know it's, it's that thing, it's like that tap, which I mentioned earlier, doesn't get turned off that easily sometimes. I think that will start to drip again at some point. And when that's going to happen, I'm not sure. But at the moment, I'm, I'm sort of contented to not... Uh, I think it's just a question of timing. I think it's just that at this particular phase in my life, I feel as if there are other uh, people who need me more or other things that need me more. And writing has definitely taken a bit of a backseat. But I I don't think it's uh, it's gone away completely. And yeah, there's a part of me that actually doesn't want to think of it as having gone forever. Because I, the vision I have in my head is of me as a very old, let, let's say, you know, and I hope I, I, I managed to get you know, large number of years, maybe not too many, but as an old person sitting down and and throwing myself into writing so that I can forget everything else around me. And that could be arthritic fingers or, you know, whatever else it might be that old age brings that I don't want to think about. Because there's never been a better way to escape the world than to write. And at the moment, I feel like the world, not when I say world, that sounds very grand, but my little world needs me. So I'm, yeah, that's really what it is. So I also don't see it as a completely closed chapter, but it is curious, as you say, that the most recent book is also goes right back to, you know, like the first one being about me and my life. And But that one piles written, written openly as nonfiction. It, it isn't, it's, it doesn't make any pretenses to being fiction at all. It's a house for Mr. Misra. Right. So I deliberately mentioned the name Misra in the title because I wanted to signal to the readers who, you know, I mean, literary I mean, fiction has been my home really all along. So I, I had to find a way, and I discussed this with my editor, to indicate that this wasn't fiction, and this was my first non-fiction book. So, yeah, hopefully there will be more. That's why I said first. But, <laughs> but not, not, I have nothing, yeah, nothing planned and no irons in the pile or anything like that. But I, it's just that, I'd again, it was a bit of an accidental book because the an editor of a very small publishing house in India, actually, contacted me a little bit out of the blue. Um, I don't think I'd met her ever. We we'd seen each other on Twitter or something. So she contacted me and asked whether I, she knew that I was uh, living in Kerala and trying to build a place. So she'd had, she knew some bare details about my life. 
And so she asked, would I be happy to write it? It was actually only going to be an essay. So like a longish essay, uh, because they were planning that little publishing house was, it was Westland, India. They were planning to bring out a series of digital books and none of them were going to be sort of full novel length or book length pieces. They were, it was just going to be like little little things, that little gems that people could sort of, you know, sort of, it's a little bit like a longish podcast, I guess. So she was looking for something quite casual and something very um, personal. And I don't know who the other people she, she was planning to commission alongside me, but she did, we actually discussed it being just my experiences in Kerala and in particular the experiences of trying to build this little studio by the beach that uh, I had at that point actually just completed. And so I, I agreed quite easily. It seemed like an easy thing to do. I, I had been keeping a few notes while we'd been building the place because that was for my own purposes. At one stage, I thought we were going to go legal with someone who was giving us a lot of trouble. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that I had all the information and the dates and things handy. So it was quite an easy thing for me to do. And I said, yes. So I started to write that and I was keeping it very short because I think she'd said something like 20,000 words, and which is really, really short, like one eighth the size of a normal book. And the easy peasy, I thought to myself and sat down to write it. And I signed the contract with her. I was halfway through writing it when that publishing house got bought up by the evil empire of Amazon, which is which was <laughs> this big monster that was eating up everything in its path, still is actually. And um, I had absolutely no choice about what was because I'd already been signed up for this project. And so there I was suddenly with this with the publishing with the people who are going to publish me being Amazon rather than these little Westland publishers who I thought I owed a little favor to because they were small and struggling and all of that. And so Amazon came into the picture and the whole thing changed complexion slightly. So a new editor was hired. Someone very senior in India was taken on to run Amazon India. Um, and she's someone who I'd worked with before. So I, I had an acquaintance, a sort of friendship with her. So she, she was quite delighted that she was getting to work with um, not just with me whom she already knew but the fact that it was a book about Kerala because she's from Kerala herself. This is a very uh, senior editor called Karthika. So she said oh lengthen it we need much more about Kerala in this book and we're going to make it and she had big plans because she was you know she'd taken over at Amazon. She wanted not just for it to be a digital book, for it to come out as a hardback. She was commissioning a really pretty cover and getting an artist to do. So suddenly there was a lot more money to throw at it. And so there was a part of it which was quite exciting. I, you know, I mean, a lot of authors have reservations about Amazon because of what they're doing to small independent bookshops and publishers. But equally, you know, to be, to suddenly find myself sheltered by the umbrella of a big corporation like that was also a little bit exciting and so the book developed slightly it's still a short book it's not really the, the length that the book none of my previous books have been as short as this one but it is it, it it is at least a book rather than just a small digital essay which was its previous avatar that's the story of a house for mr misra <laughs> I tell very long stories, as you can see. Nothing comes in you, are, you are a storyteller, aren't you? <laughs> Let's not talk about your first book and your very recent book, but generally, like, do you get inspired with an idea and then you say, okay, okay this is it. Now, uh -huh. you know, 
this is my central idea and I'm going to expand on it. I mean, is that how it works or do you get commissioned and, you know, you're told, okay, write about this or write about that and then you create a story around it. So, I mean, how does it really pan out for you? I think it just varies from book to book uh, in that I, when the, all the questions you asked just now, I could I could think of one book at least that fell into that category. So you said, is it just the seed of an idea from somewhere? And yes, there is um, one of my books called A Scandalous Secret. That one came from just a newspaper article. There was a piece in the papers here uh, about a minister called Claire Short, who had suddenly gotten reunited with the son she'd given away as you know, when in the in the 1950s, she'd had this child out of wedlock, and she was she couldn't afford to keep, so she'd given him up for adoption. And he had found her; he'd somehow managed to locate her and found her. And there was a very happy picture of mother and son, and he was now a young army cadet or something. So in uniform, that you know, and he was standing with his arm around her, and it was a nice little news piece with a happy story about Claire Short. But that that sparked off. So all I had to do was see this tiny little news piece. And suddenly I thought, oh, that's a story. And what what emerged in my book is is actually very different because it's a mother who, it is about a mother who gives up her daughter for adoption in, in the book. But she didn't, certainly there were no smiles when the daughter reappeared in her life because the, the girl reappears in once this woman is in a very, what's the word? She's in a very important sort of, relationship she she's she and her husband have a very grand sort of place in Delhi society and the last thing she needs is is this child turning up whom she's never told anybody about she hasn't even told the man she's married to so it became something entirely different it's not Claire short story at all but all I needed I think was that little germ of an idea from which I got from the newspaper piece but that's that's I think the only time that's happened so other books have been much more, like you said, a more thoughtful process in, in which it's been commissioned. I think my Rani book, the, just the historical fiction book that I've done about Rani Lakshmibai of Jhansi, that was a more collaborative sort of thing. I'd had a discussion with an editor. We talked about trying my hand at historical fiction. It, you know, it sort of emerged in a very different way. It was, it, it certainly wasn't. It's something which I, and I kept thinking of other historical characters I could have written about and then eventually came back to Rani Lakshmi Bhai. So that was a totally different way in which I sort of commissioned it in my head, if you like. The three secrets books, so that Secrets and Lies, Secrets and Sins and A Scandalous Secret, were also a very collaborative process because I got my agent here in the UK had got done a deal with uh, HarperCollins in the UK to get and it happened to be with an editor who whose specialism was commercial fiction. So she wanted, she had a very different sort of idea in her head. She'd read the first of those three books, which were Secrets and Lies, and commissioned two more on the basis of that. So she bought that book and said, let's, we'll give you a three book deal. And my agent was cracking her whip like mad in the background because she, she you know, to get a three book deal is quite a major thing. You know, it, it does mean that you don't have to worry for the next three or four years at least about where the next commission is coming from. It's all sort of set and they pay you up front and all that. So so when that happened, I had to think of two subsequent books that would sort of fit a theme. And because they'd called the first one, it wasn't my title at all, it was Secrets and Lies. I'd called it something entirely different, Golden Friends, actually. But because they called it Secrets and Lies, they the idea of secrets that can reappear in one's life and maybe dis 
come close to destroying your life. That became the sort of theme. So while the three books are three entirely different stories, different characters, there is a kind of thematic binding together, which is what commercial fiction editors often do. So different, yeah. It's each time it's been something a little bit uh, different that's created a book. <laughs> There's no formula, pile. Certainly not in, in my in my writing life, which, as you can see by now, and your listeners will will hear, is a very messy one. So please don't go by whatever I've done. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's it's interesting because it you know you've kind of dabbled with different genres and you've you know experimented with different ways of of the way the books sort of you know what's the word the way they the way they develop the way they develop yes thank you so um yeah so I mean so that's interesting and as far as I'm concerned your most recent book is not your last book (laughs) thank you maybe I need someone to come along and tell me that But, but lockdown is not a good time to start writing a new book, I don't think. I mean, I hope it's working for other people out there, but it's so, so distracting, isn't it? Yeah. It's just it's something or the other that I suppose it's the fact that everybody's at home. And, you know, there's there's on the one hand, we all have a lot more time. But on the other hand, time just kind of disappears. Yeah, <laughs> into yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and there's a kind of laziness and ennui in the air, which kind mm-hmm. of makes you feel, oh, nothing's happening. The whole world has stopped. So, you know, why <laughs> be slaving away at anything? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether you feel. I think you're still working very hard by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah, no, I am. And, you know, <laughs> yesterday's do just whiz by. And, you know, before you know it, it's like, one day is rolling into the next, but it's yeah. fine. This also will pass, um, and you know, and there will be. We'll have to get back to proper work. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and time seems to have flown, even with our our conversations. So we're already into like I don't know. I, I've stopped looking at the clock, but I've really, really enjoyed talking to you, oh, uh, Jeffrey. So <laughs> my writing for a while now like I said I've kind of I thought oh that's finished now let's talk about other things (laughs) but it's been quite good fun looking back on that strange journey turbulent sort of journey (laughs) so thank you for reminding me Pyle and that's fine you can talk about my first book that uh, yeah that is that will remain a favorite in its own way that's that's okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah I've really enjoyed reading Ancient Promises and I've loved my my chat with you. So so once again, thank you. Let's let this lockdown thing be over and then we can sort of make plans. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. All thank right, you. Ben. Thank you for calling. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Jeshri has such a special gift in the way she articulates her thoughts and her experiences. She's also so soft-spoken and I really appreciate how she was so open about her life story. It was interesting to hear her talk about how she started her journey as an author. I particularly enjoyed her historical novel based on the life of Rani Lakshmi Bai from India, which she says is her most ambitious novel so far. Hope you've enjoyed the chat with Jeshri, and as always, 
I am excited to bring you a lot more stories from across the globe. So stay tuned for yet another episode of Melting Pot with me, Payal. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.